and welcome to episode 37 of the Night Gallery podcast. My name's Chris Brown. Today we're going to be talking about Midnight Never Ends. It's the first story from episode 7 of season 2. It's a Rod Serling script and uh, directed by Jeno Swark. And it was first shown on November 3rd, 1971. A most cordial welcome to this nocturnal arcade. Featuring canvases that are sometimes a bit on the peculiar side. Sometimes uncommon. Sometimes a few frescoes and freakish. Tonight's first selection, a painting suggesting solitude, or at least solemnity. As viewed during the midnight hour, it tells a tale of two young people caught inexorably in a recurring nightmare, with a finale on the jolting side. Our painting with the somewhat familiar face is called Midnight Never Ends, and this is the Night Gallery. So our story begins with a woman called Ruth, who's played by uh, Susan uh, Strasberg. Uh, she picks up a hitchhiker, who's a guy called Vincent, called um, for, uh, played by Robert F. Lyons. And um, they're sitting in the car, and it's midnight. It's very dark, you can't see much at all. And they're going down very lonely ro- roads. And both of them quickly get a sense of deja vu, of, uh, that they've already been through this before in the past. This feeling gets worse to the point that they think they're able actually to uh, see into the future. Um, for example, Vincent uh, is able to write down on a piece of paper just what he thinks Ruth is about to say. It's all a trick or, or ESP. You probably do magic and, and get people up on stage and hypnotize them. There's a place a little ways up the road. Place for what? You were supposed to ask me if I knew some place where we could stop for coffee. Maybe that's why we have to keep doing this over and over until we get it right. It'll be closed. But we get him to open up. A big fat man playing solitaire. He's gruff. He didn't like us. There's something else going on as well, though. The things are happening as they think, but they're all slightly different. Um, it's it's things are happening, and they're feeling like they're going to re- they're repeating, but um, not not quite as they'd hoped. Uh, the cafe which they see and uh, heading for initially is um, doesn't quite close as early. As uh, as they thought it would, and that kind of stuff. Also, and possibly more importantly, Ruth discovers she has a handgun in her bag, and she's got no idea how it got there. Uh, it's Vincent who decides to carry it with with them as they go into the cafe. Uh, they go in, um, and they're both on edge. They're both on edge because they know that a policeman's going to be coming in uh, and also the cafe owner is dealing with them uh, in, a, in, a, in an iffy way. He thinks they're uh, hippies, that kind of stuff. Um, they become suspicious, both the, uh, the, cafe o- the cafe owner and also the policeman when he arrives. The policeman mainly because they are acting suspiciously uh, and also Ruth was unable to produce any documents for the car that she's driving. 
but also um, uh, because Vincent starts talking to them both in a way, kind of trying to make them remember the fact that they don't actually know why they're there and they're also part of this unusual thing. It seems to, but to to him and also to Ruth that they're repeating things again and again and they're unable to escape it. He tries to impose this view on the sheriff and also on the um, on the cafe owner and that, that makes things escalate to the point that uh, Vincent pulls out a gun feeling like he has no other option to, but to do it and then gets shot, uh, slumps to the floor clutching his stomach and um, while this is happening they can hear a tapping on a typewriter it's uh, then that um, we go to um, well everybody basically stops at that stage and um, we we see a, a cut as it were to a writer that's uh, tapping away on a keyboard. Ruth seems familiar to me. Should she be? She's from an old play that I wrote. Uh, It's about a spy from Hong Kong. And the Marine? From a TV western. Guitar and all. You know who I think Ruth killed? Her husband. Because he left her alone too many nights. Good night, love. So all this is actually a... um, uh, Motions of a writer and these characters are just pawns while he's trying to tell his story, unable to um, escape this man's writer's block. And um, that's uh, exemplified by, at the end, when the writer returns another piece of paper into the typewriter and starts bashing away again. We go back to Ruth as she goes to offer a a young hitchhiker uh, a lift, and it all starts again. So right, first off the bat, as a review, you can't you can't ignore the fact that this feels massively like a Twilight Zone episode. Um, sailing occasionally got um, some stick from some certain members of the part from people about about there was a feeling that maybe he was just regurgitating scripts sometimes, and certainly with Midnight Never Ends, there is that feeling. Um, it's it's not completely like a copy, um, like something like, uh, well, in season one, um, there was, uh, there was that, that direct rip-off of the guy in the uh, submarine with Lone Survivor, which had a very similar kind of riff. And also, to be fair, a similar kind of idea of, of history repeating and having no sense of being, uh, of being part of something. Certainly with this again as well, I mean, you know, this idea that you, you haven't really got control of your fate. Um, it's something that's revisited time and time again in Twilight Zone. And uh, being a pawn, as it were. 
and um, you know this is this is no this is no uh, you know this is no um, this is no different. Um, what I would say is this is one of the ones that was heavily rewritten before hitting the screen. Um, the scene order and the way the story pans out is identical, but all the dialogue is different. Uh, Jack Laird gave it over to Gerald Sanfeld, Sanford, sorry, um, to rewrite, uh, and he did so uh, with quite a lot of relish. Um, he's quoted in um, the After Hours Tour book, saying, I rewrote the whole thing. That was all my show. I did the entire script. I mean, Salem wouldn't have recognised it. And indeed, he probably didn't. I mean, it, it, was, it was a huge rewrite. Um, the first question you've got to say is, um, did that rewrite make, a, make it better? Make the story any better? And the answer to that is probably not. Uh, the dialogue was simplified a lot. Uh, a lot of the floweriness was taken out. That's something that Laird didn't like. Um, but the basic flaws of the piece, the, um, the fact that Salem basically gives away a great deal of what's going to happen in the intro, which is something he does a lot, to be fair, in Night Gallery, but normally you don't mind it so much with this. It's it's pretty obvious where it's going to go because it's so late and waiting for the, for the for that twist reveal. Um, it also, I mean, it give, although it gives away secrets too early, it also um, does. You know, it feels quite dated by 1971 as an idea. Um, set designer. Uh, Joseph Alves and director Janos Walk tried desperately to um, stop that, you know, make it look a bit more modern. They did that by um, having a very unusual set design. It was very basic. Um, it's also, it, but the, the other side of that is that um, it's also obviously stage based, um, being recorded on a sound stage, and therefore, although it has like a like marmalade wine has a very um, surreal edge to it that actually points you in the direction of where the story is going to go. It also gives a quite dreamlike and incomplete feel, which again points you exactly where the story is headed. I think if you're a Twilight Zone fan, or not necessarily a buff, but someone who's seen a fair few, you probably have a good old guess about where this story was headed long before you hit the actual uh, clacking of the keyboard um, but also the stagey kind of like being looking like it's being done on a sound stage for me it makes it feel almost a little bit too Twilight Zone again it feels you know those those, what, those episodes that they did which were obviously on the Universal back lot it has that kind of feel to it I mean that's just cutting corners to try and save money but um, for me that's a, that's a bit of a damage um, I mean I I feel like I've slagged it off, and just I quite like it actually. I quite like this episode. Um, you know, I mean, I'd love to to see Salem's words um, put back in place. Uh, you know, so you could do a proper compare and contrast. Um, the actual script is um, at the moment is pretty dry and a little bit dull. And that doesn't help. I mean, you know, the whole point, the good thing about certain scripts is, you know, at least there's always something good to listen to, if, even if the uh, the plot isn't exactly hurrying itself along. And um, so it's, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 that's frustrating. That is frustrating. But I think 
it's another well it's a very good example of what was going on between Sterling and Laird behind the scenes um, it is um, well first off I'd say there was a resentment there was a resentment between the two people between uh, Sterling well Laird to Rod really that's, that's, that's the way it was going um, for example Herb Wright said the network was selling Rod Serling's night gallery so they wanted Rod Serling Rod however didn't want to be on the front lines anymore on the other hand he wanted his opinion down Rod liked to see himself as the captain in absentia with his name above the title Jack liked to see himself as the captain on the fan tail steering the ship so there was some fights over, over going on over that but also as well um, more of an indication that um, that Laird really wanted to be far more in control a better quote would probably be from uh, Jack Metropole James Metropole sorry. Jack guarded his power very jealously he wanted Night Gallery to be all his it was his baby he thought of Rod, he, uh, thought of Rod Serling as just a figurehead and they weren't friends Add that kind of um, resentment to uh, to you know the the rod thing. Also, the fact that Laird was uh, a more unusual character, quite quiet, and uh, Rod Serling was was quite bombastic, uh, quick to anger, but also very well liked. People liked him. He's a likable chap, big grin. You know, he's that kind of guy. And although sometimes he could blunder into some fair few arguments, I think that's probably fair. But also, um, Laird, when it came to scripts, he loved to tinker. For example, it says here, uh, from uh, Generous Walk, when Jack would talk to a writer about a script, he didn't pull any punches. It was not that he was insensitive, he just told it like it was. When I first met him, after a while I sorted out that it was not mean spirit, meanness of spirit or lack of heart. It was, it, would, it was just that for him. It was a job. He was ruthless with his own scripts too. This is too slow. This has got to be cut out. So once you understood that, it worked just fine. But a lot of people were hurt. Those uh, quotes were taken again from the uh, Rod Serling Night Gallery after I was tour by uh, Scott Skelton and Jim Benson. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, basically there's this going on. But what also created these more explosive situations was the fact that Serling would submit his final draft to Universal, but then not receive a shooting script. So basically, what would happen is he's only Sterling would only find on late on what what was going on. I mean, at some points, even when he just sat down to watch the damn thing. I mean, a lot of the reason for that is because he didn't want to be hands on anymore after being, you know, after fighting so long over the Twilight Zone, which is fair enough. But at the same time, there was a price to pay for that, and that price is in the end a loss of control, a control that would be wrestled between him and Laird. And also the fact that they had different ideas. Laird's obviously dislike for the more cerebral and flowery episodes. And Salen's dislike for the more comedic elements of the programme. The two grated. And fans fall, you know, normally fall a lot more on, obviously, on, on the side of Salen because he was such a loved character. But the, the truth of the matter is, if they could have got together and got on a lot more and be willing to talk and not argue, I think they probably would have pulled out a... Um, episodes that were at times better but um, it's you know I mean that would lead to you know this is an example that would lead to kickoffs. he'd be on the phone all the time and going to you know to argue and argue and argue 
And um, for example, this is what Sterling says. Suddenly I'd look at a night gallery film and I couldn't recognise my own scripts. I mean, this would be a classic example of this. Um, people weren't there that I wrote about. Lines were said that I didn't write. Concepts were produced which I had no knowledge of. I couldn't ever find out how or where it had been changed or who had done what. And typically nobody would admit to not liking my words. I, I could only sense that they didn't want the more thoughtful cerebral items. Now, this is also because Laird was not a uh, confrontational man, didn't like uh, arguments. So, what, in the end, what happened was he didn't return his calls, um, which led to more frustration from Sailing, obviously, constantly trying to get in touch and trying to discuss and work out what was going on. Sailing, to a point, quite liked, you know, he had the idea that he could, you know, mentor some of the younger writers, but that, that obviously was blown out the water very early on. Um, a lot of the reason for that being obviously because of, of Laird's control eventually after all this hammering, hammering, hammering uh, Laird stopped rewriting scripts the only one that uh, showed after this basically November, December holiday period with a lot of rewrites was uh, different ones and that's because it had already been shot and that that is another one we can discuss a little bit more about this kind of um, this kind of uh, arguments and, uh, and disagreements what I would say is it's important to remember that despite what a lot of people say, not many of Salem's scripts were rewritten. Sometimes they were for, um, you know, censorship reasons, like clean kills and other trophies. But a lot of the time, or uh, the little black bag, but a lot of the time, it's only like a couple of ones. This one and the different ones being the two, two biggies, really, that were heavily rewritten, just in terms of the fact that Laird didn't like what Salem was doing. In the end, despite what was going on between the two behind the scenes, their arguments, they were able to keep that quite quiet from other members of the cast and crew. And also, they were able to um, keep it together, basically, for the good of the show. But also, not just that, um, they were, you know, they fought through differences, and, and the end result is obviously gives Night Gallery some of its slightly um, more. Uh, schizophrenic sort of feel to it being going one thing and then flipping to something completely different but a lot of people like that variety and it is after all an anthology show and should be you know as different as much different as it can be the irony in all this for this uh, story is that uh, there's a little um, easter egg for, for the fans in there uh, Tom Wright's painting for, for, the, for Midnight Never Ends is um, his only depiction of Serlin for the entire series and um, it's uh, a little bit of a, uh, a, su- a surprising twist of fate that uh, for a story that uh, is an example of writers trying to find their their voice, um, that the this uh, the, the unfortunately behind the scenes the same thing was happening too. I thought writers knew before they started out where they were going. Well, just the good ones, darling. Okay, just the uh, some, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, if you go to www.thetwilightzonenetwork.com, that's our website. That's where we host all the podcasts and also any reviews and uh, previews that we can get in. Uh, it's also somewhere you can leave feedback on any of the episodes that you listen to, such as Joe, Joe Trezorer, who uh, said of the last Night Guy podcast, about the devil's not mocked. Um, 
says, Greatest episode as usual. One question. Count Drac gets shot, but says only silver bullets will kill him. Isn't that what kills werewolves? I don't know. I didn't know silver bullets kill vampires. I thought it was wooden stakes in the heart. Thanks again, Joe Tro. Well, Joe, um, you're right. I mean, a lot. This this is because of a certain trope. Um, since medieval times, silver could be a way of um, getting rid of supernatural spirits. Um, and I think, although in modern horror, it doesn't pop up, pop up that often. It does occasionally, for example, in uh, some anime, like Van Helsink, um, and also various other bits and bobs of, of with vampires pop up um, it is normally, um, I mean, obviously, it's normally set to um, uh, normally set to uh, to werewolves, but I mean, silver has been used, and the silver bullet has also been used in uh, you know grim fairy tales. Uh, the two brothers use a, um, a a silver bullet to kill a witch, and that kind of stuff. So it's not unheard of, but it's occasional thing that pops up in a lot of Hollywood films. Uh, Monster Squad, I think, has a, has a bit of syllable action, if I remember rightly. That's a long time since I've watched that. Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I know what you mean, Joe. It, it does seem a bit odd that he, that he just mentions it out of random, particularly since, you know, he's not particularly with Count Dracula. You wouldn't normally expect silver bullets to kill that particular, uh, that particular kind of vampire, or that particular vampire. But uh, I think it's more uh, a throwaway comment about... Um, you know, silver bullets trying to kill people, and I, I can understand why, particularly as a throwaway remark, it would cause a bit of confusion. But I think that's what it's it's uh, it's saying. Anyway, uh, if you want to leave any feedback, it would be great if you would do. That would be really cool. You can do it on the web pages, or you can uh, go to Facebook or uh, follow us on Twitter. All of that's on the website, all the links to that. Um, or you can follow my personal Twitter if you if you really want to. It's at orange underscore monkey. Or you can email. It's chris at the twilightzonenetwork.com. And uh, we always like to hear what you've got to say. It's always great that uh, people are paying attention and saying hello. Um, next week we have got a uh, the last the second half of this episode, which is Brenda. Which uh, I would say is probably the more interesting story out of the two from this episode. It's it's, it's very different. It's um, yeah, I mean it's it's got some nice touches to it, and uh, it's a bit more thoughtful than maybe it appears on first glance. So until next week, take care.